The scripture reading tonight is 2 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 17, and verses 24 through 33. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent forth the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out to the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the fields of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom chanced to meet the servants of David. Absalom, Absalom was riding under upon his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten thousand pieces, ten pieces of silver. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not put forth my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there are tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings tidings. And the watchman said, I think the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zatak. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good tidings. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is all well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. 
And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would had I died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. The word of the Lord. Remember the, uh, the handsome, brave, winning young man, the shepherd from the hinterlands, who faced down the Philistine warrior Goliath with nothing but a slingshot in his faith in Israel's living God. Remember David, Jesse's youngest son, whom the prophet Samuel anointed king. David the friend and perhaps also the lover of Jonathan. The Lion of Judah, the most celebrated king that Israel ever had, with whom God made an everlasting covenant. What happened to that man, to his family, and to his kingdom? How did we end up here with David's kingdom divided and David himself weeping and incapacitated, with two of his sons dead, the eldest Amnon killed by his own brother, and now Absalom killed for treason by David's agents after raising an army against his father? Not even to mention the other dead child, the first one conceived by David and Bathsheba. The child God caused to die as a punishment for David's sins of lust and power. How did it come to this? Who would have thought a story that began with such promise would end this way? If you haven't uh, heard it before now, I'll let you in on the first rule of preaching. The preacher is supposed to proclaim the good news in the scripture reading. That's what the term gospel means, good news. But what is the good news in any of the stories we've been hearing lately at the House of Mercy? The David and Bathsheba story that Debbie preached on a couple weeks ago. The Amnon's rape of Tamar that Nathan preached on last week. Or now this one about the death of Absalom that has fallen to me. Scholars call this set of stories about David and his family the succession narrative in which one by one all of David's other sons are eliminated and until only Solomon remains the most calculating and politically ruthless son of all and he succeeds to David's throne. And some Old Testament scholars, notable ones like Walter Brueggemann, have, have argued that um, this second set of stories um, the succession narrative must have been written by a different author than the one who wrote the first set. 
the ones about David's rise to power. But whether these are separate writers or not, it's clear that all the favor that David enjoyed in his early rise to power yields to a far more troubling reality that ensnares David in his old age. As the prophet said, the sword will never be lifted from David's house. Well, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, when the people originally asked for a king so that Israel could be like other nations, God, through his prophet Samuel, warned them what would happen. God said, the king will take your best land. He'll take your children to serve as soldiers in his wars. He'll take your crops. He'll force you to build his palaces and roads and will make you his slaves. Why are you rejecting the freedom I gave you when I delivered you from Egypt? You saw what kings were like then, didn't you? Look at the pharaoh. Is this really what you want? And the people's answer was a resounding yes. So God said, you want a king? Okay, I'll give you a king. Here's Saul. See how you like him. And the answer, it turned out, was not very much. Now, while Saul, Israel's first king, was a, he was a tiger on the battlefield, he was also impulsive and crude and ineloquent. He is terrible at public relations. And in short order, he lost the confidence of God and of the people. So then, along comes David, handsome, charismatic, young, rooted in the shepherding tradition of his people, a musician and a poet, a king right out of central casting, like Abe Lincoln, only better looking. He represented something different, um, a popular charismatic kingship grounded, it would seem, in justice and compassion. He stood for change you could believe in. And then there's the lore that followed David, like his triumph over Goliath. So before facing Goliath, he tells King Saul, this is David, this little shepherd, he says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion came or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the draw, jaw and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears, and this uncircumscribed Philistine shall be like one of them since he has defied the living armies of the God of Israel. Wow, talk about an inspirational speech, huh? Everybody seems to love David, including, or perhaps especially, the biblical narrator who recounts his rise to power. When David first appears, the narrator tells us that David was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was very handsome. I think it's the beautiful eyes part that set him apart. Other characters are described as handsome. Saul's described as handsome. But nobody said Saul had beautiful eyes. So David is sent to serve King Saul in order eventually to replace him. That's the divine plan, but nobody tells Saul that. And so Saul develops this huge crush on David, just like everybody. And Saul has David play the harp to soothe him whenever God visits Saul with an evil spirit, which happened quite a bit to poor Saul. 
The Bible tells us that Saul loved David greatly, and he became Saul's armor-bearer. Now, if I were Saul, a king with a huge PR problem and several prophecies already pending against me, armor-bearer is the last position I'd want to assign to my young, ambitious, charismatic rival. But Saul was completely seduced by David, as was Saul's son and heir, Jonathan. Maybe if those of you who went to church, you probably heard the David and Jonathan stories. The Bible says that the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan loves David so much that Jonathan strips himself of his robe, his armor, even his sword, and he gives them to David, leaving himself exposed and unprotected against the man who will usurp the throne from his father and end his family's short-lived dynasty. But David's seductive powers blind Jonathan to the threat David poses. And whether due to divine ordination or human scheming, Soon enough, Saul and Jonathan are dead, and David is on the throne. And then after that, there follows one triumph after another as David conquers his enemies, consolidates his power, establishes Jerusalem as his royal city. And then God makes an everlasting and unconditional covenant with David, something he never did with Moses. The Moses covenant was not unconditional. And in that covenant, God affirms, reaffirms the promise of the land to Israel, but also promises that David's throne through his descendants will be established forever. But the Davidic text turns abruptly darker as it moves into these succession narratives, beginning with the Bathsheba affair and culminating in Absalom's rebellion So I'm picking up where Nathan Roberts left off last week, but I don't suppose everybody was here to hear about um, that part of the story, so I'll just recap it briefly. So, So Absalom had an older brother named Amnon, who was the heir to the throne. And Amnon, he could have had any woman in the kingdom, but his lust bent toward his own sister, or half-sister, Tamar. And Tamar was Absalom's full sister. David, of course, had many wives. And so there was a special bond between Absalom and Tamar. And Absalom was supposed to protect um, Tamar. And Amnon calls Tamar to him and he rapes her. And after he rapes her, he feels contempt for her and sends her away. And Absalom does the honorable thing. He goes to his father, the king and says, give me justice, but there was no justice to be had from King David. And as Nathan reminded us last week, David, who had forced himself on Bathsheba and then had her husband killed in battle, was living in a glass house when it came to deploying violence in order to satisfy his whims and his lust. So after David does nothing for Tamar, only then Absalom takes matters into his own hands and he has his brother Amnon killed. And then there appears to be, there's an alienation and then an apparent reconciliation with David, but 
really, Absalom starts the plot to overthrow David from that moment on. And you might ask yourself, how is it that Absalom thought he could overthrow such a charismatic and savvy king as David? How? Well, the truth is, Absalom is a lot like David. Like the youthful David, Absalom is apparently drop-dead gorgeous. The Bible tells us that now in all Israel there was no one to be praised so much for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish on him. <clears throat> and Absalom apparently also inherits his, um, his father's uh, political abilities to seduce the people. So what he does is he gets up early and he goes out to the gates of Jerusalem and he stands there. And when the people who are coming there to plead their cases to the king, he meets them there and he greets them. And he says, what brings you here and where are you from? And they tell him. And he says, you know, your claims are good and right, but there is no one deputed by the king to hear you. If only I were judge of the land, I'd give you justice. And so we are told Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. <clears throat> and with a huge following, Absalom now raises an army, and for the first and only time, David's reign is imperiled. But David is growing old, and moreover, he loves Absalom as the son after his own heart. So David, the Lion of Judah, falls into a state of lethargy and despair. We didn't hear all that, but there are parts of that story where David, who is so fierce in battle, is depressed and listless, doesn't know what to do. But God is still watching out for David. Or maybe David's watching out for himself, I don't know. So two things happen that defeat Absalom. One is that uh, God confuses Absalom's advisors and confuses Absalom so he takes bad advice. But the other thing, and this we did here in the reading, David is fortunate in the service. He has in his service the ruthless um, and effective General Joab. And Joab doesn't need to be told what to do to keep David in power. He knows as long as Absalom lives, David's reign is imperiled. So despite David's counsel of mercy toward Absalom, Joab has him killed. And this leads to David's famous lament, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I think this lament is sincere. At that moment, David's world collapses. And he wishes he had died instead of Absalom. The, um, the novelist, the great uh, American novelist William Faulkner, wrote a story based on this uh, tale called Absalom, Absalom. And Faulkner's novel is set in Mississippi. And there is a David-like anti-hero, a ruthless, larger-than-life plantation owner named Thomas Sutpen. 
And in Faulkner's story, it's greed and the evil of slavery that weave a web of destruction for Sutman, who rejects his eldest son just as David rejected Absalom. And as with David, the sword is never lifted from Sutpin's house. And the novel ends in tragedy, and it's all caught up in the Civil War. But perhaps most important for our purposes, the tragedy that Sutpin and those like him bring down upon the South does not end with their deaths. The aura of doom persists for many generations. As Faulkner famously put it, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And so it is with the legacy of David's family dramas. They, they create a tragic arc that envelops all of Israel for the rest of its history. The succession narratives themselves are finally resolved with some political intrigue that puts Solomon on David's throne and while Solomon's reign is largely unchallenged due to his Machiavellian ruthlessness, perhaps, and resourcefulness, almost every king who follows faces conflicts and divisions. But who cares? Who gives a damn about kings, you might say, so long as the people fare well? So what if the promise made to David bypasses his corrupt family? as long as it extends to Israel as a whole. But you know what? Israel doesn't last long either. Soon enough, it splits into two kingdoms, and after that, it's carved into pieces by various empires. First, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria, then the southern kingdom to Babylon. And even after restoration under Persian rule, Israel is never truly autonomous again. By Jesus' time, it's nothing but a, another Roman colony. <clears throat> so I ask you once again, where is the good news in this story? I have to admit, I'm tempted to search for any good news about kings and political leaders by escaping from this text altogether. I mean, not all promises of enlightened leadership are as blighted as this, are they? I want to forget about this story. I want to imagine myself standing shoulder to shoulder with like-minded enthusiasts in Grant Park, located in South Chicago in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. I wasn't there, but I want to put myself there. I want to picture myself holding a sparkler or a flashlight or a candle in the air, along with thousands of others a multi-racial, multi-ethnic crowd of jubilant supporters celebrating the election. You could even say the coronation of a young, handsome, charismatic liberal politician, a nonprofit leader, we love them at the House of Mercy, who ascended from humble origins to the highest position in the world, a man who seems to embody all the hope that had been missing so long from our national politics, You'd have to ask Michelle, but I bet he even had beautiful eyes. But, you know, now that we're five years plus into the Obama presidency, how is it working out, do you think? I don't want to deny there are some good things to say about the Obama presidency. There certainly are. And I certainly wouldn't compare him to David in his personal life, and I'm by no means suggesting that Obama or any single leader 
has the unilateral ability to transform the militarist corporate empire that the United States has become into a nation based on the principles of peace and equality that Martin Luther King envisioned for it. But all that said, how transformational have the last five years really been? I mean, what about bailing out the big banks while doing very little to help their victims who lost their home due to fraudulent mortgages, or for that matter, bailing out the auto companies when the firefighters and pension holders in Tr Detroit, in light of the bankruptcy, are left with almost nothing? How about the prison at Guantanamo Bay still being open? giving rise to the desperate hunger strikes there? What about the long, bloody war in Afghanistan that actually escalated under President Obama? Or the kill lists? Or the drones dropped on people all over the world, some of whom are children and couldn't have had anything to do with terrorism? Or the global surveillance system revealed by Edward Snowden? Or for that matter, the aggressive prosecution of whistleblowers like Private Bradley Manning or Snowden in a manner that surpasses even the Nixon administration, at least in terms of numbers. Just this last week, only a couple days ago, former President Jimmy Carter was quoted in a German newspaper as saying that America at this time does not have a functioning democracy. Back on election night in 2008, who would have thought we'd be hearing a quote like that from Jimmy Carter, known for his human rights advocacy, about the state of democracy today under the Obama administration? And it's certainly not all due to President Obama, but who would have thought we'd heard it? When was it exactly that the cheering faded away and the lights in Grant Park blew out? Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And still the people said, give us a king. And so we say up to this day, give us a king. Give us a king. We don't want to be responsible. Freedom under God isn't enough. It isn't practical to create an egalitarian society, give us a better set of rulers. Without them, we'd be lost. We need a command structure, a hierarchy, a beneficent ruling class to lead us. And God replies, if that's what you want, that's what you'll have. But if you ever decide to live freely and compassionately, without depending on a king or an empire or a militarized corporate system for your protection and identity. If you ever decide you want to walk humbly, seeking justice for the outcasts and showing mercy to the poor. If you ever decide you want to become stewards of the earth, halting your heedless destruction 
and establishing a right relationship with the rest of creation, then look me up because I have some ideas. And that, folks, is all the good news I have for you tonight. I hope it's enough.